Once upon a time, there was a village. It was a nice village, full of good people, and it sat right next to a river. One afternoon, the townspeople were gathered at a picnic, enjoying each other's company, when one of the villagers caught sight of a baby floating downstream. She swiftly jumped into the river, traversed the strong current, and saved the baby just in time. The villagers scrambled to comfort the baby, finding clothes and food for him, until they heard another cry. And sure enough, they turned to see a second baby floating down the river. The next day, they rescued four babies from the river, and on it went, with the number of babies increasing with each day. The villagers organized themselves quickly, building watchtowers and training rescue teams. Others stood at the ready with clothes and blankets and open arms. And soon the rescuers were working around the clock, and the number of babies had increased to the point that they couldn't save them all. It was all they could do to care for those that they had. Hospitals, schools, foster care systems, and social services, at this point, there was a rhythm to the operation. And then, one day, one of the swimmers got out of the river and began walking. She was followed by cries of distress. Where are you going? We need you here. And she turned, sad eyes watching the babies floating by, and said, I'm going upstream. We've got to figure out who's throwing these babies into the river. What you just heard was The Parable of the River Babies, a classic tale popularized in the 1930s by Saul Alinsky, social reformer and community organizer. This episode, we're going to meet some people who have jumped into the water themselves, and others who have taken the trek upstream and returned with news to share. Shifting Climates, where we attempt to rehumanize the conversation on climate change. I'm Michaela Mast. And I'm Harrison Horst. Thanks for joining us. You may have noticed that this season, our episodes revolve around a specific place. Buckingham, Albuquerque, Navajo Nation. This episode, we'll continue to hear about place, but this time from those who, at different points of their lives, have felt placeless. People who have loved a place, but were forced to leave and have no way of returning. Our topic for today is migration, and we're going to start in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Right now, Albuquerque is one of the villages pulling babies out of the river. I think you'll understand what we mean by that in just a moment. All right, so part one, the village. Today, ICE is releasing 525 refugees, and they will be distributed as follows. So 60 are going to Iglesia. This is Carla lanting Shibuya. We're sitting across from her over breakfast in the middle of a crowded hotel lobby. And then they come, they, you know, ICE brings them here. And then once they come here, you know, we get all their information. They have paperwork that has their, um, I don't know, processing number, their asylum number. It was our first morning in Albuquerque, and we had just come down from our rooms looking for breakfast. And we did find breakfast, along with a room packed full of people, nearly all of them speaking Spanish. So we approached a couple women with name tags on who looked like they were in charge to ask what was going on. That's what landed us here, sitting across the table from Carla and her friend Eleanor. So what's happening here this morning? 
where so so the buses come and the buses came on Saturday 100 people that's Eleanor Milroy, co-founder of Albuquerque Interfaith, the organization involved in this particular operation. You can hear the commotion around us as people catch last-minute bites of food and say rushed goodbyes before hopping on the departing buses. You get them in their rooms. They're hungry. They're dirty. They've not had a chance to shop. They, ice takes everything from them. And one guy that had his phone because he put it in his little boy's underwear, so I missed that. <laughs> But, so they they come up, they get a chance to shower, they go to our retail outlet, they get fresh clothes, they get fed, and that's a big deal because they've been hungry, they get a bed. Just a couple days before, a few hundred asylum seekers, most of them parents with children, arrived in Albuquerque on a bus with no English, no money, and no food. Just a few papers. They had just been released from a detention center run by ICE, or Immigration and Customs Enforcement, on the border in El Paso. And an aluminum blanket is what they have in El Paso, or in the, at ICE in El Paso. Okay. And most of them are there three, four, five, six days even. Okay. Including, you may have seen it on the news, where they had a, they fenced in an underpass under the bridge. And they held people there. It wasn't even, yeah, exactly. I know they're going to do that when it gets hotter and hotter. Now Paso can get pretty darn hot. When released, they were dropped off on the side of the road with no direction. In many cities, communities have organized teams to meet the asylum seekers and help them find a place to stay, food to eat, and directions to their next destination. But in El Paso this spring, the relief organizations were over capacity, which is why they started sending busloads up to Albuquerque. Where are most of these folks coming from? Um, most of them are from uh, Guatemala or Honduras. Okay. So, and then we've had some Cubans uh-huh. and Brazilians. We came away from our encounter with the asylum seekers with a lot of questions, still trying to piece the details together. Later that day, we had the opportunity to speak with an immigration lawyer named Monica, hoping to clear some things up with her. I'm Monica Newcomer-Miller. I'm an associate attorney at Noble and Frappi. Um, It's a private law firm here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we do all immigration-related work, immigration defense and uh, affirmative applications for people that are filing for status. Monica doesn't actually work with the part of the process we'd witnessed that morning, She works with people who have been living in the U.S. for years already, in more of a niche field, specifically with cases of domestic violence. But she was still able to give us a bird's-eye view on immigration in the States. Ideally, everyone who then goes from here to wherever their family are, if they're staying in this area, they would contact an immigration attorney who could help them with the process of applying for asylum. So everyone we saw at the hotel that morning was on their way to meet up with their sponsor, usually a family member, who agrees to support them until the end of the court proceedings. So they go through an interview process, they meet with um, consular officers who uh, interview them and make sure they meet the requirements of a refugee. Someone who has been persecuted because of their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or because they're part of a particular social group. I hadn't known this before. The term immigrant refers to anyone seeking long-term residence in another country. But most people arriving at the border fall under a more specific category because they're fleeing persecution. Carla told us that as well. 
Most of the stories she's heard involve threats of violence. So basically then, it's the same definition for refugees and asylees, but refugees are accorded status outside of the United States before they come, and asylees are applying for relief once they're here in the United States or at the border. For everyone we encountered at our hotel, the process looked like this. They made the long trek to the U.S., arrived at the border, and declared themselves as asylum seekers. From there, ICE took their fingerprints, ran background checks, and detained them until their sponsors were confirmed. Once released, most of the time with ankle bracelets used to track location, they were expected to find their own way to their sponsor, which is often made possible by organizations like Eleanor and Carla's. Which takes us back to the hotel, where things were starting to make a little more sense. So this is an emergency for us. We're back with Eleanor at the hotel. The politics, and that means you guys ever seen the parable of the babies that coming downstream? You know what we're talking about? Well, we're trying to be upstream, we're trying to figure out why. And so, we've met with the senator, we've met with the representatives, we've got a whole border strategy with our fellow organizations that are along the border um, to try to do something in the big picture. In the meantime, we're pulling the babies out of the stream, so... Pretty literally. (laughs) Pretty literally, that's right. The mobilization of the community in Albuquerque was pretty impressive. This operation we were witnessing, complete with hotel partnerships, translators, a room stockpiled with extra clothing, and packed lunches for the road, had taken shape in the past month, within a few weeks. It all started with a text from a relief organization in El Paso that said, We have 300 people with no place to go. So, 300 people, there were 170 at the hotel over there. I think I forgot how many Back to Carla again. So, just people from all over the city converged. Um, and it was, it was total chaos, but it was loving chaos. So, it was a really beautiful thing. I mean, everybody was, like, bringing every level of expertise and connection and heart that they had to bear on, okay, how are we going to help 300 people get to their families safely? So I was sitting there just in this like whole whirlwind of things, and I sat there and I thought, okay, what can I do? So I just said, what if I just do all the food? And um, so much, someone stuck their head out of the brain and said, great! <laughs> so, uh... And since Carla's been involved, it's kind of monopolized her life, but she doesn't regret it. She told us that when she lives life a little more on the edge, closer to places of desperation, it's much easier to see grace seeping in, to feel the Spirit of God. Her life has been changed by the people she's meeting, and she shared one story with us from a Guatemalan man who had left the hotel the day before. One of the things she said was, United States, the United States, he's like, it's like, you know, it's like the city on the hill. It's like, it's the good place. It's the greatest country in the world, the strongest country, the, the leader of the world. And um, he said, I, you know, I understand some English. And he said when um, they were taken into custody, he said he was shocked at what they were saying to people. He said, they didn't know I could understand. He said, well, he, he said, it, like, just physically, was like, oh my gosh, like, why are they talking to us like this? We're people. And so he said, he said, he said, I can understand some of what you're saying. Why are you treating us like this? That's what he said. And then he said they got really quiet. 
I find it just as hard to understand why he was treated so poorly. Like Carla told us, these are our brothers and sisters, people who are desperate enough to leave their homes in search of safety for them and their children. The least we could do is offer them some food, water, and respect when they arrive at our doors. So um, I think all of us are called to, you know, go into that river and be be and create that together. So I think all the asylees and us, I mean, we're all doing this together. So it's been really beautiful. And it's been a deliberate um, refutation of the denial and the fear that we keep hearing about. And it, it is pretty liberating to be not just reading the news and lamenting what's happening, but to to choose to choose life, you know, and to share it with people. We share this story because it's the closest we got to the border. It jolted us into the reality of the four hundred and ninety-two thousand three hundred and two people who have arrived at our border since the beginning of two thousand nineteen. Maybe most striking is that the overwhelming majority are children and families, which is so different than the narrative we've been hearing, which portrays the average migrant as a single man. In May alone, 11,000 unaccompanied children arrived at the southwest border, along with another 84,000 family members. Together, that comprises almost three-quarters of the total. That's a lot of people walking away from the place they call home. Let me tell you a little bit of a story. I, a few years ago, a Mennonite brother from Ohio, he sent me an email. He's, he was saying, have you heard about you know this, this flood of uh, immigrants or illegals who are coming to the border? This is Saulo Padilla. Yes, uh, my name is Saulo Padilla. Saulo is the Immigration Education Coordinator for Mennonite Central Committee, and one part of his job is leading learning tours to the U.S.-Mexico border and the Mexico-Guatemala border. But then uh, I said, you know, why don't you come with us to a learning tour? And I was desperate to get one of these learning tours at that time. So then I said, would you come with us? And I said, um, we will be able to cover your expenses. And uh, so I had to go looking for some money around. But then he was able to come. Salo was talking to us over the phone from his home in Goshen, Indiana. And even over the phone, he was centered, cordial, and kind. You can tell he's a people person. He enjoys engaging with the people around him. Uh, what I found is people have a single story of the border because of what the news say, right? So then they have stories of um, uh, drugs and it's dangerous there and there's no wall and so things like that. So then when when we went and he spent a few days there, he heard border patrol officers talk about what they do and, and also even some of them feeding and giving water to migrants and healing their feet. By the end of, uh, of that, um, he was very confused. One. So that's I love that moment of confusion because then no longer could he keep one single story. 
Salo says that moment is one of his favorite parts in the work he does, where he gets to see those single stories of the border changed into stories of complexity. Salo's been working closely with immigrants for 11 years now, sometimes visiting the border six times a year, so we wanted to hear his perspective on the situation in Albuquerque. And of course, there is no easy answer, no single story, but he did have some thoughts on the way things have changed and the current nature of the border crisis. A crisis is happening at the border. Yes, there is a crisis at the border for sure. The other thing is that um, a lot of people have heard that the United States is trying to close the door more and more and more. So they're trying to get in before it closes completely. Mm-hmm. And that is one, right? And um, so then we are seeing a lot of that. The smuggling business are also taking a lot of advantage of this. So then there is a lot of smugglers who are then uh, promoting that people should come before this happens, right? But many of the migrants don't have the means to pay smugglers to get them across the desert, which has led to a new phenomenon, the caravans, hundreds of people, the poorest of the poor, crossing the desert together. But for those without the protection of such a large mass of people, the journey is getting much more dangerous. But now, I, uh, when I have visited in the last few months, in the last year, then you see people who have been there for months, who are not able to cross this way because of the wall, but also smugglers, cartels, organized crime is charging them $500 in order to cross through the desert that they own. And as a result of the heightened danger, paired with slower processing at the border, tent cities and refugee camps have started to pop up all along the border of Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and California. The desert has become deadly, said Salo. So one of the tragedies, too, is that um, more than 10,000 people have died in our desert, and we don't know about it. The, uh, the medical examiner's office in Tucson, the Pima County uh, medical examiner's office, there are at least a thousand, the remains of a thousand migrants who are unidentified. And um, there are families crying somewhere and missing somebody, but we don't know who they are. There is no news media that is covering this. If it was happening in Harrisonburg, or if it was happening in Elkhart County that we have found a thousand people dead here, you know, we will be, this will be all over the news. It's an inconvenient truth one that's easy to ignore because we don't see it. In one attempt to bring the situation to light, Salo told us that he will soon be walking the Migrant Trail, a 75-mile trail that traverses the desert in acknowledgement and remembrance of those who've died along it. What the patrols say is that um, they said the deserts will become um, lethal deterrents Uh to, uh, to people who are trying to cross the border today. So then they build a wall and then they push them around and then there will be lethal deterrence. The U.S. is making concerted efforts to push people toward the most treacherous sections of the desert by building a wall along the most accessible parts. But it's just not working. They're not being deterred. They're just the lethal part of their operation, right, is there. Is they're lethal, but they're not deterring people from coming. One of the things that shows us that is that when we are walking in the desert or if we ever go visit the desert, you will see that we find uh, jugs of water, the two-gallon water. And then you seeing um, backpacks being left behind. So you, you see there's a lot of migration and a lot of crossing. Even as the journey becomes more dangerous, the number of asylum seekers arriving at the border has begun to rise dramatically. 
Though the past two decades have seen a decrease in migrants, the trend is now reversing. In the past decade, the average number of migrants arriving at the border in a year's time was around half a million. But already this year, in just five months, we've surpassed that average. So yes, we do have a crisis on our hands. And Salo's continued experience at the border is just one part of his perspective. Another is his own story. Yeah, um, I, uh, so I grew up in Guatemala, in Central America. And <clears throat> I was born there and I lived there for 15 years of my life. During the, the rainy season, that's May to October in Central America, then um, our streets will turn to little rivers and we used mm. to make little paper boats. But uh, the beautiful thing after that was that we used to have a lot of clay to play with. Mm-hmm. So then we used to make little toys of cars out of clay and play with that. But Salo's peaceful childhood was disrupted when, in 1978, his father was kidnapped and tortured by the Guatemalan government after his involvement in some protests. Their family uprooted and sought refuge in Mexico in 1980 when the death threats started to pile up. Salo was 10 at the time and later returned to Guatemala with his mom and siblings when his father left for Canada as a political refugee. Five years later, they were able to join him in Calgary. I am the son of a refugee. I am an immigrant. I failed fourth grade in elementary three times because I was being pulled out of school and migrated to Mexico. And um, all these things happened during that time. And I became a problem child in school too. I didn't want to go to school. In middle school, I was terrible and causing all these issues. And so long story short, Salo dropped out of high school and then worked as a janitor, a forklift operator, a cook, and a truck driver. But then someone at church tapped him on the shoulder. They said, you should go check with this organization that is offering skill training for recent immigrants. Mm. So then I walk into this organization and they give me skill training for, uh, to, be, uh, to become a mechanic. And he did well. Salo became a licensed mechanic and worked for Lexus and Toyota for nine and a half years up in Calgary. And then Salo decided to get his GED and then a bachelor's degree at Goshen College. And then he went to seminary, all made possible by scholarships and encouragement provided by his church. So I know by personal experience that the church can do this. Um, and the church can walk with a stranger because it has happened to me. We can question all the sort of things that are happening out there, but my own story just tells me that the church can do this and that God is a God of foreigners and strangers mm-hmm. and has walked through with foreigners and strangers in the Bible, in the history, and continues to walk with mm-hmm. foreigners and strangers today. Many of the people I encounter at the border who are migrating today, they are praying all the time and they're asking God to walk with them as they are crossing borders. Salo sees great potential in a church-wide response to immigration, that the church might walk with other immigrants the way it has walked with him. And so he often extends an invitation to the church to read the Bible through the eyes of an immigrant. Doing so brings the stories of modern migrants to life. And Salo explained by narrating the story of Jacob and his son Joseph, who is sold to traitors by his brothers. You read that a child was missing, and then get an old man to start crying in the background, and read the rest of the story with somebody crying in the background, because that's what happened. Jacob is crying through the whole story until there's a resolution, and we don't hear Jacob's cries. And at this point, those thousand migrants, the remains of them, the thousand migrants that I was talking about in the desert, there are Jacob cries all over the, you know, Latin America and the world too, crying for their dead. Um, our own, you know, Jesus Christ 
Lord and Savior is uh, becomes a political refugee as you know as a baby. So what does that mean for us when we find all these refugees, mothers and children, and, and fathers with children coming through the border and knocking our doors? For both Saulo and Carla, welcoming refugees is a deeply personal issue that has spiritual roots. Both spoke passionately about the need to rehumanize the people showing up at our borders, and both talked about how they could feel the spirit moving in the metaphorical river that is this border crisis. But this is just the beginning of the story. Remember, we're still in the village, in the river, pulling babies out of the water. Which takes us to part two, the search upstream. Where are all of these babies coming from and why are they being thrown into the river? What are the root causes of the crisis that we're facing now? One of the reasons why I'm here today and why my family had to migrate is the civil war in Guatemala. We're still talking with Saulo, who is explaining how the Guatemalan civil war is a part of his family's migration story. What people don't know is that the civil war started in Guatemala back in the 1950s, when uh, the United Fruit Company was trying to turn Guatemala into a banana republic. It turns out that if you look close enough, the United Fruit Company had a lot to do with the immigration of Salo's family. The United Fruit Company, or UFC, was the biggest exporter of bananas in the world, an American corporation that held a lot of power in Guatemala. They owned huge sections of land, had control over the railroad, and the only Guatemalan port on the Atlantic, were exempt from taxes, and in 1950 brought in two times the revenue of the Guatemalan government. This is a great example of what Salo referred to as a banana republic, or a country that is politically unstable and whose economy depends on the exportation of a limited resource, like bananas or minerals. So the UFC held a great deal of control in Guatemala until 1950, when Jacobo Arbenz came along. And then there was a democratic elected, a democratically elected president in Guatemala in 1950s. And um, he was trying to do some land reforms, take money, take land away from some of the large companies that point that were not using the land and give it to people who will work in agriculture, Guatemalans who will work in agriculture. One of Arben's biggest campaigns was the Agrarian Reform Bill. The goal was to take uncultivated land owned by corporations and transfer ownership to peasant farmers working in the country. And Arbenz was successful. A few years into his presidency, over a million acres had been distributed to a sixth of the population, improving the lives of thousands of Guatemalans, especially indigenous people. But one of the corporations that took a hit was the United Fruit Company. So the UFC went to the U.S. government, trying to convince them that Guatemala was corrupted by communism. And here's where it gets crazy, because the U.S. listened, despite the fact that Guatemala had finally stabilized under a democratically elected president. So long story short, the CIA got involved, and with the help of a major psychological warfare campaign and some Guatemalan coup leaders in exile... So then uh, the CIA basically came to Guatemala, they bombarded Guatemala City, and uh, they created a, uh, some turmoil that, uh, in a coup, so then... They took out the elected president and they installed a dictator at that point. 
They dismantled Arbenz and his government and replaced him with a leader who was far more compliant to the U.S. And of course, this divided the people, and thus began the civil war that pushed Salo and his family out of the country. It lasted for 36 years, from 1960 to 1996, during which time the U.S. also fueled the conflict by providing weapons to the government that were used to massacre thousands. And then that same thing happened in Honduras, in El Salvador, in Nicaragua, and in other countries in North America. So a lot of the people who are coming now are also coming from from places that have had a lot of conflict in, uh, in the last few decades, and it's related to U.S. foreign policy. This is a crazy story, and it's a good example of the way the U.S. has had a hand in causing and perpetuating the violence that Central Americans are fleeing from. Another thing we heard was that much of the gang violence in Central American countries, especially El Salvador, also originated in the U.S. in cities like Los Angeles, which in the 90s deported large numbers of criminals and gangsters from its streets. But among all of these complexities, there's another push factor related to both violence and poverty, climate change. A lot of migrants who I have found at the border who are coming from, from the dry corridor in Guatemala, and their harvests are not giving them very much, and the rains have stopped. They don't know that it is actually climate change. They just know that the rains are stopping and shifting, the patterns are shifting. A lot of people say, no lluvia, there is no rain. Hmm. Right? That's the response that they will give sometimes. Why are they migrating? Why is there that they're, they're, they're moving? And they will say, no lluvia. The changing climate in Central America has had all sorts of secondary rippling effects, only one of which is international migration. There has been an increase in internal movement as well. Many of the people who are um, were living in the rural areas of Guatemala who are no longer seeing rain, uh, then they are starting to move to the cities. So the cities, uh, the urban centers are getting crowded with a lot of people. So that increases crime and, um, and poverty. These trends aren't restricted to Central America either. The mass migrations predicted worldwide in the next few decades are staggering. According to United Nations University, 200 million people are predicted to be displaced due to environmental events by 2050, with others predicting that those numbers could reach 1 billion. So then those uh, numbers are incredible. And then also when you start seeing that the United States in 2003, I think they had. uh, somebody do a report and at that point 2003 they said one of the uh things about national security we start seeing that we'll have to start working on is our borders because in the next few decades climate will start changing in different parts of the world where a lot of people will be coming through our borders by definition a refugee is someone who has a well-founded fear of persecution for reasons of race religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. That current definition doesn't include any mention of climate change, but Salo thinks that it might not be long before that changes, as displacement due to climate change only continues to rise in the coming years. People working with strategy in, uh, in the Department of Homeland Security, they're starting to see that, and they know that there will be more and more people coming to knock on our doors. And it will probably have nothing to do, will have to do with poverty, but also a lot of it will have to do with climate change. This is one reason why climate change is on the Department of Defense's list of concerns for international security and stability. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, it's also interesting that we in the United States are 
part of responsible for, I think since the late 1850s till now, the United States is responsible for 27 or 28 percent of the green gas um, the pollution, right? Mm -hmm. So we have this big uh, part of what is happening right now. Also, countries in the European Union are part of like 25 percent more of that pollution. But they are the ones building walls. Right. And they're the ones who don't believe in climate change uh, or what, what is happening. They're not doing much, especially in the United States, right? We are in denial completely of what is happening there. There's an irony here. Countries like the United States, who are among the leaders in producing carbon emissions, are simultaneously building walls to keep people from coming in, even as the number of international migrants goes higher and higher. It's like this domino effect of things, right, uh, that has happened. But at some point, I would say, the human spirit of survival. It's, and you hear this from border patrol officers a lot. People, people will climb walls, they will go underneath them, they'll build tunnels in order to survive and keep, you know, keep their families safe. They'll go around them. And a wall is a very simple idea of just like building a wall will not do it. It's more, there's more complexity. You cannot fix a political economic problem by building a wall. You have to shift other things and, and or, or climate change. You cannot do that by building a wall. Uh, it's it will, people, people in climate change and economics and politics will go around that, that wall. If you've listened to our other episodes, forgive me for the repetition, but I again feel that Salo's interview calls for a few words on sacrifice zones. This season, we've learned that our society is designed in a way that necessitates sacrificing the health of people and places. The Navajo people for the sake of uranium, Antonio's community in Albuquerque for the sake of production, and Union Hill for the sake of cheap energy. These trends aren't limited to the US, however. Saulo told us of one village he visited in the mountains of Guatemala, where a gold mining company had transformed the area. The company came in and brought its own workers with it, so a village that had only a few cantinas and bars to start out with had over a hundred by the time the mining company left. Families were torn apart by prostitution, sex trafficking, and alcoholism. On top of that, the village's resources were devastated, their diminishing water supply was contaminated, and the local economy was crushed as was the social stability of the area. Another sacrifice zone had been established. And where did its inhabitants end up? On the move, some of them undoubtedly in caravans, inching their way across the Sonora Desert. Back in episode two, we met and interviewed with a Franciscan sister from Albuquerque named Joan Brown. Joan shared a helpful metaphor with us, one that gets at the importance of moving upstream as we continue to focus efforts in the village. She heard a woman once say, We have all these needs right here in front of us. Hunger, homelessness. We don't have time to work on climate change, even as people of faith. And the response Joan heard was this. It's sort of like this. You go to the gym and you get on a treadmill. And while you're walking, you see someone on the treadmill next to you who's been on that treadmill for a very long time. They're thirsty and hot, and so you pass them some Gatorade. But as you give it to them, you also increase the speed of the treadmill. So they continue on the treadmill, and you give them some more drink and even a snack, 
and you increase the speed and give them more to eat and drink, increase the speed, until eventually they're going to fall off the treadmill no matter how much sustenance you provide. That's what's happening here. Our next interview tells of these same patterns, but it takes us to a totally different part of the world. Yeah, I was born and grew up in Goma. And uh, my good relationship with the land was being able to get in touch with uh, the ground my whole life, playing soccer without my shoes and enjoying uh, the warmth and uh, the beauty of my city. We're talking with Rodrigue Makelele. Yeah, my name is Rodrigue Makelele and uh, I'm from the Democratic Republic of Congo and now in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Goma, where Rodrigue grew up, is a city of one million in the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of the Congo that borders a beautiful mountainous national park. I was so connected with, uh, with Goma than anywhere else when I grew up always walking around and uh, and having time to spend in the park in the national park and watching gorillas and monkeys and uh, and other animals and lions sometimes which is dangerous yeah, <laughs> but Rodrigue is vibrant laid back and well spoken and he's quick to talk about his passion for justice he arrived in the US as a peace builder and soon after became an asylum seeker as well which leads us to his story the first thing that I did was playing professional soccer. That was my life uh, when I was growing up. And, um, and I played soccer until I was 17. And then I stopped. And I didn't stop because I didn't like soccer. I stopped because life made me stop. He had been in Europe playing soccer for just six months when he returned home to consult with his father before signing a final contract with the team. And. Um, in the meantime, like a week after I, I got home, he was murdered. So that changed my whole path to a different life of staying home and taking care of my family. Yeah. So, yeah. so Rodrigue stopped playing soccer and instead went back to school to study information and communication technologies. The job he got after graduating was with a telecommunications company at home. And this took him to rural areas of the Congo that he had never seen before. And that brought me into the social issues because I had to work with rural areas, people to provide internet and, and access to information. I personally experienced uh, the needs that people had uh, villages as kids were dying every day. I spent 30 days in a village and I saw 35 kids dying, aged zero to five in 30 days. And that terrified me the most. And he knew that what he was seeing couldn't be solved just by providing internet access. And uh, then I fall in love with uh, justice and human rights and peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I founded my NGO in 2013. Back in the time I was only 22. Yeah. And the NGO started providing basic needs to kids in rural areas before we moved into peace, uh, justice and education field. I had to decide to create just the own NGO so we can look at the broader situation of kids and young people in my country. Mm-hmm. What's, what's the NGO called? 
Vijana Africa. Vijana stands for young people. I met Rodrigue at Eastern Mennonite University at the Summer Peace Building Institute. He'd come to the U.S. with the intention of being in the States for a few weeks to take some peace building courses. And afterwards, he planned to return home. Uh, coming here with, uh, with hope of going back home, my goal was to take the trainings and go back to Congo and resist more because resistance is one of my weakness. But also in the meantime, things kept on changing in my life. Rodrigue started to get terrible news from home. Like uh, me leaving the country because of being threatened to die and then my siblings being tortured and threatened to die and, and nothing being clear about uh, what could be the next step. So These threats were not totally out of the blue. In fact, as Rodrigue described it, since he began advocating for the young people of the Congo, being tortured and receiving threats from the government were a common part of life. At one point, he had to flee to Rwanda for two weeks, and at another, he was imprisoned and tortured for a couple months. So when he heard what was happening at home, it wasn't hard to imagine that his return might be dangerous. I had to make a very difficult choice at that time of staying or going back. And I was tending to go back, but still, the uncertainty in the process wasn't uh, something that could allow me to go back home and be safe. So. so Rodrigue stayed and began the long and tedious process of being granted asylum status by the U.S. And though his life has taken a sharp turn, Rodrigue still has that passion for justice and belief that peace is possible for his people. As it stands in the Congo, though, things couldn't exactly be considered peaceful. Yeah. The main problem is war in Congo, and, and war is always about interest. And uh, when there is a clash of interests, or there is a competition of interest, there could be some violence. And that drives many, many different rebel groups in the Congo. And if you do the cartography of the conflict in the Congo, you could see how everywhere we have conflict, people fighting, we have some natural resources. Something we do a lot in this podcast is connect our own lives to the stories we hear from around the world. But how could we possibly be involved in what many call an ethnic conflict in the DRC halfway around the world? Well, maybe it's no surprise that Rodrigue has a ready answer. And uh, we could bring the notion of technology, you know, and the cell phones and the computers that can only be made by Colton and Tin. And th- those things, they said that almost 60% of those things, those cobalt is in the Congo and to make computers every single smartphone or computer need that so it means I have some cobalt in this computer right now and it might have been dug violently in the Congo you know over half of the world's coltan reserves and a significant portion of the world's cobalt are in the DRC and like Rodrigue says coltan is used in nearly every type of electronic device so it's extremely valuable Colton and other conflict minerals, like diamonds, were central drivers of the Second Congo War, the deadliest worldwide conflict since World War II. It involved invasions from neighboring countries, the rise of dozens of armed militant groups within the country, the intervention of global corporate entities, and a tremendous amount of internal displacement. The war resulted in between 3 and 5 million deaths and another 2 million displaced, in addition to widespread instability, malnutrition, and disease. It continues to have repercussions in the form of armed conflict today. 
and people call it like uh, ethnic conflict, but I don't define it that way. Yeah, it's all about resources, and um, and that lead to degradation and deforestation in the meantime, because refugees uh, they f they flee from their cities or their villages to other places. They 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 find their shelters in the in the parks or you know, national reserves and start killing animals to feed to feed themselves and their families and start cutting trees to you know to warm themselves and 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 and, and cook their food. So I think it's just interconnected. And as always, the health of the people is intertwined with ecological devastation, which is especially serious considering the size and wealth of biodiversity in the forests of the Congo. And I always want to mention that Congo is the second largest rainforest in the world after Amazon in Brazil. So Congo pre preserves the whole world against climate change. <laughs> To be rich in natural resources is often considered a blessing, but for the DRC, it's turning out to be almost more of a curse, as neighbors near and far have rushed to take advantage of its open minds and government instability. Its southern neighbor, Rwanda, is one of the largest exporters of coltan, despite having few reserves itself, and countries like Canada, Australia, Germany, and the US all host mining companies that operate in the DRC. Characteristically for our time, it's a complex conflict, and it's hard to know what to say when we're sitting across the table from someone like Rodrigue, whose home is facing such turmoil. But he says his story is what drives his hope for peace. Peace is, I think, for me, peace is what I bring to the table without harming myself or other people. I can have needs, I can have rights, but still, I have to bring those to the table without harming myself or other people and acknowledging that other people could be hurt by my actions even though I don't think those actions are bad or they can harm them but still something can happen from there and so being aware of myself and my surroundings yeah. and being peaceful with nature is the most important for me yeah. so I hope to see a peaceful Congo, a peaceful U.S., and a peaceful world. I hope to see uh, the beauty preserved and uh, people putting aside their selfishness and thinking of common interest. This spring we came across the term hiraith. It's Welsh and it's not easily translated into English, but it goes something like this. Hiraith describes a feeling of longing for a home that no longer exists. It's a longing to be where your spirit lives. For Adrig, that place is Goma, and for Salo, it's the mountains and streets of Guatemala. And I think also of the Navajo here. What would it feel like to know that the place where your spirit lives existed generations ago? So Hiraith, I think, weaves itself through all the stories we've been hearing this season. In sacrificing the health of land that serves as home, we create irreversible harm, spiritual harm. And restoring that harm becomes all the harder when the home people are longing for no longer exists.
In part three of this episode, we're going to continue exploring the idea of Haraith by asking the question, what happens when your home is changing before your very eyes and you have no way of stopping it? There's definitely been a certain amount of activity that's gotten us here to the point where we are, and I feel like we need to really be considerate of what those activities mean and what those consequences mean for the most vulnerable. This is Nicholas Fields. I'm Nicholas, Nicholas Fields. We ran into Nicholas in the third floor hallway of the Environmental Studies Building at Yale University. We'd been connected by a mutual friend, and we were struck immediately by his quiet friendliness. Nicholas chooses his words and actions with great care. I am a second year Master of Environmental Management student here at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Um, I'm actually here on a Fulbright scholarship from Barbados. Back in Barbados, before he came to Yale as a graduate student, he worked for an organization called Carib Save, developing climate resilience projects in communities around the Caribbean. So I didn't really get into climate change in a, in a professional way until I started working at that same uh, not-for-profit that I mentioned earlier, Carib Save. Um, and that, that's where I really sort of got my feet like completely soaked mm-hmm. um, and really like immersed myself into a lot of what was happening and specifically within the Caribbean context, looking at like climate change projections, uh, potential impacts, mm-hmm. um, strategies for adaptation and a little bit of mitigation as well. In the Caribbean, climate change is a significant existential threat. Aside from the long-term risk of sea level rise, which in and of itself is devastating for island nations, any increase in severe weather patterns is a bad sign for countries like Barbados. I'm really sort of trying to understand where the Caribbean was intending to to take its development in respect of becoming more resilient um, and what it may need to do a lot more of because there's a possibility that the rate of change is outpacing the rate at which we're adapting to the change and whether that's going to result in some sort of negative net impact down the road. Barbados is a small island of about 167 square miles in the Southeast Caribbean, home to about 280,000 people. The island is one of what Nicholas calls SIDS, small island developing states. And like many SIDS, Barbados can't really afford to devote a lot of its resources to reducing their already small carbon footprint because the effects of climate change are literally knocking on their door. We already suffering from like the economic and social consequences of extreme weather it, like climate change is, is another factor that can make that worse in the future but it's already like we're already dealing with like major major impacts so it's yeah. it's you know we need to make sure we keep that in the forefront um, and hopefully at home we're not taking things for granted Nicholas said that when the international community talks about extreme weather in regards to climate change, they usually talk about Category 3, 4, and 5 hurricanes. But tropical storms, tropical depressions, and small hurricanes can also dump tremendous amounts of rain. So an increase in these sort of storms is significant for island nations like Barbados. It's, a, it's, it's an issue of trying to raise our concerns at an international level and not have them shot down in whatever way they, they, they are, whether it is that countries are deciding to like not fulfill their commitments to you know support for adaptation and mitigation they're not fulfilling their commitments to reaching the objectives of the Paris agreement they're just 
they they are prioritizing their own economic development, their own social development, which is understandable considering that they have their own citizenry to sort of protect and uh, their interests that they're looking out for as well. On the international stage, SIDS are some of the biggest advocates for a global climate change agreement, like the Paris Agreement, in large part because their very existence may depend on it. In 2009, the nation of Tuvalu made international news when its representative, Ian Fry, gave an emotional appeal at COP15, the 15th annual intergovernmental climate change gathering. Fry compared the non-binding resolution developed in Copenhagen to, quote, 30 pieces of silver to betray our future and our people, and said, the fate of my country rests in your hands. Some island nations like Kiribati and Fiji are already evacuating and relocating parts of their country in anticipation of rising sea levels. When it comes to like uh, adaptation and uh, preparedness and resilience generally at home, um, I think I also get a little bit despondent just because you know a lot of islands have been doing so much work in trying to promote adaptation and sustainable development in whatever way they can with whatever resources they can access. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, a lot of like 10 years of work can get wiped out in a single event, you know, and mm-hmm. it's, yeah. you know, 20, 225% GDP losses is, 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 is um, it's, it's just like unthinkable. Nicholas is referring to a number put out by the Caribbean Economic Review that put the amount of loss and damage from hurricanes Maria and Irma in 2017 in Dominica, a nearby island nation, at 225% of its GDP. When I said earlier that small island nations are kind of forced to put their resources into adaptation rather than mitigation, this is what I'm referring to. It's hard to maintain a stable economy and society when you suffer more than twice your GDP in storm damage in a single year. And like that can happen in a single event, you know, and it it's, yeah. sets you back so far um, and governments have to redirect resources that might otherwise have been going to like social care programs, et cetera, into building back. And, you know, it just it just really affects the progress of development within, you know, within the country that might have otherwise been doing well had it not been for, you know, some major hurricane coming along and just just wiping the floor clean. Barbados and other nations have found themselves in a sort of race against climate change. Can they adapt to the changes affecting their islands, the storms and the sea level rise, fast enough to literally stay afloat? Or will Nicholas and his friends and family be forced to watch their homeland go underwater, becoming placeless in their own right? And the fact that that is just expected to get worse is just scary. Um to the point of you hope that you know we can have enough time at least to build back but what if you don't and then what do you do then you know necessity breeds innovation and um we just need the time to make sure that we can see those plans through and i think that is what the problem is with climate change is that i don't think we're going to have the time to see those plans through Take a moment to think of home. For me, it's a place where I feel settled, held by the people and mountains around me, in a time and a place where I know I belong. The longing I feel for that time and place comes and goes. It's more than nostalgia. 
It's a deep-seated ache, a true aching of the heart that comes with loss. As I consider the time ahead in light of climate change, I'm taken aback by the number of people whose lives will be permanently tinged with that feeling, the feeling of Harith. It makes me wonder, what is this world we are creating? The impact of losing home is undoubtedly traumatic, and because so many will experience such loss, I'm afraid we'll have a massive spiritual crisis on our hands. While it's hard to imagine how to make up for the loss that we've already created, I think one thing is clear. This is a call to do everything we can to protect the homes that remain. There is a constant longing uh, in my heart and me for uh, for Guatemala. When when people ask me where are you from, so at this point in life, I am 49 years old, and I have lived almost 16 years of my life in Guatemala. I lived 16 years of my life in Calgary, and here I've been about. 17 years now in Ocean. So I am from all these places and I've been shaped by all these places. But when people ask me, where is home? My my heart and my mind go to Guatemala uh, and that's where uh, where my skin feels good, where my language comes out in the right way and my tongue rolls the right way, um, where um, where my culture and I get, I get lost in people, right? Where nobody can kick me out. They, I, I belong there. At the same time, my home has changed and I have changed during this time, right? Yet, that longing exists and has continuously uh, existed since the moment I left Guatemala. And yeah, it's there. Shifting Climates is produced in collaboration with Sarah Longenecker, who is also our photographer and web designer. Theme music is by Jesse Rice and Madeline Miller. Credits music is by Luke Mullet. And transition music is by Maria Yoder, Maya Garber, Perry Blosser, and John Bishop. A special thanks to the Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions, who is sponsoring this project. And a quick shout out this week to Adrian Durstein, Tim Seidel, and Xander Pellegrino for connecting us to people, places, and ideas that made this episode possible. You can find us at www.shiftingclimates.com. Check out a preview of our very last episode coming next week. And also on our website, you'll find a really interesting photo essay created by Beatrice Temudo. It's called The Miracle of Multiplication and complements this episode beautifully. You can find more of her work at www.beatrizetemudo.com. All right, I'm Michaela Mast. And I'm Harrison Horst. See you next week.